Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. This week is the 50th anniversary of the original nine. The nine women who signed on with Gladys Heldman in Houston to play an invitational tournament that turned into what would later become the Virginia Slims Tour and then the WTA Tour. This is a massive foundational moment in the history of women's professional tennis, women's professional sports. It's a big, big deal. Corey and I talked a lot about it on the last episode we did, or posted Sunday, which gives some context, hopefully, to better appreciate this interview we have today on today's show that I did with Christy Pigeon, one of the original nine, the youngest of the original nine, who was there in Houston. Christy talks all about her life story in tennis, her journey, what led her to being one of those nine women there on that day, what happened after, what the tour was like back then, what women's sports opportunities were like back then. It was a very different time, different world, but the impact of what she and those other eight women did on that day in Houston 50 years ago still resonates today and is why we have the tremendous sport we have around us now in women's professional tennis, which remains the biggest women's sport professionally in the world in terms of business by a large, large gap. So here is Christy. I think you'll really enjoy our chat. Like I said, check out the episode with Courtney maybe before listening to this one because it will give you some better context and background about what the original nine is and then enjoy this chat with Christy, which I think is great. She was very open and a really impressive woman and character. Very happy to have on this week's show, 50 years after the original nine was formed, Christy Pigeon, who is one of the original nine at the onset of women's professional tennis as we know it today. It's changed a lot since then, but very cool time to look back on. Christy, thank you for being on the show today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So what was your what was your introduction to sports as a kid growing up in the 50s, I guess? What, what sort of role did sports play at your life from a, from a young age? I grew up in Danville, California. My first sport was competitive swimming. Hmm. When I was six years old, I, I uh, rode my bike down to the local rec center in a small town in the East Bay area of California, jumped in the pool, and, and the... Uh, the swimming coach, a Hungarian fellow, asked me if I'd like to join the team, and I did, and that led to swimming up to five hours a day every day mm. for quite a while. And then one day, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of your questions here, but just to jump ahead, they were offering free tennis lessons at the rec center. So uh, when I was about 12 and a half, almost 13, I grabbed a racket. I, m- my dad bought me a $5 old Jack Kramer racket at the thrift store and I walked over to the courts and started playing and won the little tournament for kids at the end and never never looked back on swimming. Cool. What what did you know about tennis before before that moment? How much was tennis were you aware of it as a as a sport that was being played on, you know, what counted as the high levels then before the professional era? Uh, or was it just something that you were sort of first encountering that day and at the at the rec center i just sort of stumbled upon the sport i I, swimming was was tough because you get in the pool and you swim 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 and it's not a thinking man's game like tennis you're just Mm -hmm. going as fast as you can and you're doing what whatever you need to do to to develop that stamina in the pool and 
tennis was a lot more interesting from the very beginning. And I, I was driven, even though I had no idea that there was a international tennis scene. I just was, was driven to become better. And then my mother, who was always encouraging me to read, gave me a, a book about Althea Gibson. And oh. that got me even more excited because she, she's just, was such has an incredible I don't know if you know her story but mm-hmm. she was a, a black tennis player uh, growing up in the eastern seaboard who went on to win some some grand slam tournaments and her story was was compelled me as well and opened my my eyes to what possibilities were yeah no she was yeah late 50s she won several grand slams I think three or four so she would have been exactly you know, and obviously trailblazer is sort of the the jackie robinson equivalent of tennis in that era yeah yeah that's very cool what when tennis started getting more serious for you i guess as uh when you were 12 13 what did what did that entail like what did how how much time were you spending on tennis what did training look like and competing back then at that age in that era yeah after i won the little rec center tennis tournament the uh local pro at the at Diablo Country Club offered me a job stringing rackets and cleaning up the pro shop in exchange for lessons. Hmm. So I immediately jumped on that opportunity and that led to playing with club members who needed uh, a partner, a hitting partner, a playing partner, intermingling with the other kids during lessons. And I quickly ended up beating all of everybody at the club and the pro was continually giving me additional lessons and and then I entered my first northern california tournament and from there it was I was gung ho I I started practicing all through high school practice from 12 I go to school until 12 o'clock and then just practice my tennis and string tennis rackets and work in the pro shop all afternoon till it got dark and and uh playing tournaments in Northern California had strong competitive mm-hmm. atmosphere and you could basically play a tournament every week in the summer and during the 14 and under girls and then 16 under 18 and under that's primarily what I did and, and where I played I, I did start to play in the nationals in the 14 and unders in Chattanooga Tennessee and hmm. and quickly was exposed to a big world tennis yeah. was Still reasonably big back in those days. What, what was it about? You mentioned it being a, a game that encouraged thinking, but what else was it about tennis that just really made you so quickly want to spend so much of your your time on it? Especially at this is a time when there wasn't a professional sport, especially on the women's side, um, really where you could make it a career per se. But what was it that just made you want to make it such a passion for you? Still, what kept your what kept you going in tennis and kept you wanting more? Uh, at that point, as a high school age teenager i had been athletic i always liked sports and tennis was as i mentioned before more of a thinking man's game so it just stuck me into being in the present when you're in a when you're in a match you're just thinking on every point and the rest of the world is completely blocked out for you and i i could easily get into that zone and playing a match and wanted to be the best I could and hated, hated to lose. I think that's one of the things later on that, uh, that brought me some success is 
just being being driven to be the the best there is and in setting goals. You always have to set a goal. My first goal was to beat everyone else at the country club. Then the next goal was to win the uh, Northern California Girls Championships, which I eventually did, and and then from there go on to win win the U.S. Nationals, and then so forth and so on. And and if you're setting goals and you have steps to get there, because in tennis there's so many little intricacies you need to practice. For example, if your backhand is poor, you need to work on that for a month or serve and something. So what I'm leading up to is it's very a stimulating activity, I guess. It's you're always having having to work. There's always something to do, always always a challenge in front of you, like someone else better than you that you want to try to beat. So it was a competitive it brought out Tennis brought out my competitive spirit. What was it like for you? I mean, girls who were dedicated to sports as a concept was much rarer back then in, in, in the early 60s. What, what did people, other people make of you and your dedication to the sport and your competitiveness of just being a, an athletic-minded girl in that, in that era? Because that was still, I'm guessing, something of a much, obviously much less common than it is today, where it's completely a non-event. Well, that's a great question because I had a very difficult time. I think it was hard on everyone. My town is basically small, made up of upper middle class people that I grew up in, but yet there was a stigma of women in sports that was not attractive. My dad, for example, got upset with me because I had no interest in going out for cheerleader. Mm. At, 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 high, at high school and his idea of the perfect woman was one with high heels and tight angora sweaters mm-hmm. and that was that was not me and the boys in high school at my high school would often tease me for example they'd be driving to school and I'd be out jogging because that's what my coach had me jog in the morning even though I don't think tennis players jog now but that was that was a sign of what what was important back then. Right. And the guys in the car would go by and heckle me and make comments and I was I was a wallflower in high school and I guess I just put it besides and just wanted to stay focused on my tennis. But even at that young age during that time, if you wanted to be good you you had to, you had to stay focused. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned your father. How how did your how did your mother feel about you pursuing this? My mother was behind me all the way. She was okay. basically backbone. He drove me to tournaments, and and if it wasn't for her, I it would not have been pos- possible for me to travel around the, the local tournaments around Northern California. Hmm. So so was tennis at least at least in the athletic spectrum? I back then it was seen as a sport that was more acceptable more feminine i guess since some other sports might be then i don't know sure what other options like like basketball or whatever other sports took longer to develop as as women's sports was that at least something that was at all acceptable for for you as a tennis player that women and girls were established in tennis from basically the early days of tennis well absolutely yes there were no other sports for for women i i can tell you one quick funny story i went out for little to try out for Little League with my brother because hmm. I had a fit because I 
because I couldn't play and I loved hand-eye coordination sports like, like tennis is. And I played baseball with my brother frequently. So I put my dad, put my hair up in a hat and off we went for tryouts. Hmm. And they put me, they, they uh, tried me out a number of positions and I was pretty good. Then they put me up to bat and the kid, a little boy threw a pitch and I hit a line drive that hit him in the forehead. Oh, wow. And, uh, uh, of course, it became known at that time I was upset. And they found out I was a girl. And <laughs> I got kicked off or kicked out of the tryouts immediately. So basically, other sports for women, other than, say, swimming, tennis, I can't even think of any other sports that were maybe, available. Maybe where they golf, had, maybe? Maybe golf, but I don't remember any kids really being serious about golf yeah. back i just don't know i couldn't answer that i guess it's usually less of a sport for little kids probably golf yeah yeah so you start getting better at um obviously your results keep picking up you start playing traveling around the country and then around the world and in uh 1968 i think you, well i guess when when did you sort of when did you start playing cause i was going to ask you about because you won two junior grand slams in 1968 which i wanted to ask you about but you were already playing some. I think you were also in that year at Wimbledon already in the in the women's draw as well, and so exactly yeah. And so when did when did you start playing sort of against against women then or against the sort of open age group tournaments in 1968, which I was 17 when I went to Wimbledon for the first time, mm -hmm. and as you mentioned, I was in the junior draw, which instead of being for 18 and unders, that was for 21 and under players. Hmm. And then I also played in the, in the women's event that same year. And I played in quite a few, mostly women's tournaments that year. I still won the U.S. Junior Championship and played in that in Pennsylvania. But, but uh, for the most part, I was playing more, a higher percentage of women's tournaments. This is right around the time of when the open era started. So were you a professional right away? Did you wait to turn pro or how did that decision happen? It just sort of slid into it because I, I and by slid into it, I'll explain. Okay. Uh, that first year in 68, I went to, I flew to London early and played some, what they call the warm-up tournaments to Wimbledon, mm -hmm. which were in places like Manchester, Nottingham, Liverpool, et cetera, et cetera. And at those tournaments, even though it was up to you to pay your expenses there, they would usually find a, a place for you to stay, either with a, with a family or a hostel or something like that. But they paid prize money. The prize money was <laughs> minimal, though. I mean, if you won the tournament, you might make $250. And in my case, if I, if I got to the fourth or fifth or quarters of the women's event, I'd make maybe $30. Yeah. So I did accumulate some, some prize money before Wimbledon started. And then Wimbledon paid prize money as well, even though it wasn't a lot. So it just sort of, sort of happened where we initially, nobody really signed up to be a pro. It just sort of evolved starting in 68 at that time. Yeah. 
looking I was looking back at Wimbledon 1968 which was the first yeah tournament that had both professionals and amateurs competing together so it was a big moment for open tennis and everything and one of the things that stuck out to me from the professional side is looking on the Wikipedia page for this tournament seeing the prize money uh for the champions at least it was 2000 pounds I guess for the men and 750 for the women or something like that yeah so less than half and of yeah. course this was this was when the first time these things were being quantified, I guess, in that sort of black and white way in tennis. Do you remember yeah. back then the women already noticing and being upset with that kind of distribution of things right from the jump in 68? Initially, no. Hmm. Uh, we, we didn't really talk about it. And for me personally, I, I, I never thought of at that time, I never thought of the prize money. I was just there to compete and to do the best I could to try to win, but it wasn't like I'd look at the draw and say, well, and I did later, I did this sometimes, which was bad to say, well, if I get to the third round of this tournament, I'll make $5,000. Mm-hmm. It's not a very, it, it's not a, it reduces the competitiveness. You just yeah. to be, to be good. You have to, you can't think of the money. You just have to think of winning. Yeah. So I don't think at that point though, to answer your question, we didn't, we were not concerned with the disparity. Right. Okay. So what was Wimbledon winning junior Wimbledon at that time? I, I was, as you know, cause I sent you some, some clips and some photos and stuff I found of you in newspaper archives while I was researching you last night. There wasn't a whole lot of coverage that I could see for when you won at least junior Wimbledon. And so I'm wondering what was it now we think of, you know, if you win a junior grand slam, you know, you've agents all over you, media sponsors wanting to, you know, come, you know, especially if you're you know an American or somewhere from other big tennis country. What kind of reaction was there to you winning Junior Wimbledon? What kind of impact did that have on? Did that change much in your life? That title? No. <laughs> Didn't seem like it. No, it was outside. It was pretty. It was pretty interesting, and and I I had such a great year in in '68, and my personal story is quite a bit different than some of the other. I call them the girls, actually, the women players. Sure. Contemporaries. That were they still do that on tour for sure yeah and my so i i could look at the top that first year at wimbledon i lost to billy jean where i had a couple of points that actually made the difference between winning or losing so i could have even beaten her that year she won and after i reached my goal of winning junior wimbledon and i still went on to win the pennsylvania grass courts and did pretty well the rest of the year, but I had made a decision to go to college. Mm. And here's a, here's kind of, I don't know. It's not really funny. It's interesting. I'm number one in the world for under 21. I've won the U S open and what scholarship opportunities were available to me. You'd think I could go anywhere in the world that I wanted to go, but no, yeah. there were no opportunities. Before Title IX, yeah. Before Title IX, there was there was women's tennis programs at most U.S. universities, but none of the top players went to college, so they weren't very competitive. Right. And I looked around to see what what opportunities I could have, and they were so limited. Odessa, Texas, offered me a scholarship. Arizona State University, but that was about it. And so I had to make a choice. And my choice was to 
pay my own way to college, which I had some assistance from our my local town set up a what they called a good citizenship scholarship, and they helped me out a little bit. But that was a big turning point because in my life anyway, because I made that decision to to go to college, and part of it was made because I looked and I could see what Billie Jean, who at the time was number one, she had won Wimbledon. Her life didn't seem <laughs> like it was like there was was anything special going on then. Yeah, I mean she'd won and and it wasn't that big of a deal. Just like when I won Junior Wimbledon, it wasn't it wasn't that that big of a deal. And and, and I said, well, there's got to be more to life than this. And of course, that changed for tennis and changed for women in in sports as well with, with title nine. But after I started going to college, I liked college where in high school, as I mentioned before, I was sort of a wallflower, but right. when I got to college, I, I enjoyed my studies and I could play. I lived in a co-ed residence for a while and uh, at UC Berkeley and I could play flag football with the boys and they all thought I was really cool. And, <laughs> and, uh, that kind of led me away from from setting new goals in tennis a little bit. I still wanted to play, and I still was trying to be competitive, but unfortunately, it was hard. It was really difficult as as we progressed. We meaning women progressed yeah. sport to equal towards equal prize money. It was hard for me to, to do both to go to college and to compete at the same time. Whereas right. In my generation, guys like Stan Smith and Bob Lutz could play competitive tennis in college and still play in the men's circuit because they had a good college scene behind them. Right. So, so yeah, and, and and there wasn't there wasn't really a you know a professional tour for the women that you could even turn pro and have that really mean anything in terms of having a full time you know occupation like it would be years later. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I lean towards making the life decision to press on with, with college instead of just tennis. Yeah. It's like it wasn't, wasn't enough. And of course that all changed two years later. Bam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were there and it was a process leading up to, to uh, what, what we did as original nine with our boycotting the, the Southern California summit. But right. Things certainly changed fast, yeah. lately fast after that. So let's go a little bit back to so you're in your college days. You went you were at UC Berkeley in the late sixties, which you know Well, I went to both Mills College in Oakland. Okay. I wanted to stay close close to home because that's where my tennis focus was and my, my right. coach, my workouts and that kind of thing. So okay. I went to both Mills and UC Berkeley. Okay. So Berkeley at least I know, um, in the late sixties was one of the most progressive, you know, liberal places around in the world. What was, how did, how did that sort of being there uh, affect you? And how did that affect maybe your views on, on everything that would come later in your life in terms of being part of this historic group of women? On, on a personal level, two areas really affected me. One was obviously women's rights. Mm -hmm. And I had, her been I attended lectures given by Betty Friedan and mm -hmm. others and was influenced by those and also our at Mills our 
president had vowed not to have children because basically children were viewed by, and this is something that went on in the Bay Area where you had early kids, Stanford, who was striving for zero population growth. Right, zero population growth, yeah. So, and I've always been, my major was in, was in wildlife biology, and I've always leaned towards doing what's best for the environment. And uh, so I was influenced in that direction as well to to make for a better world by keeping the world clean, which, of course, hasn't happened. But <laughs> that's a whole other story. We won't get into that. <laughs> so, so, I, so I guess, yeah, so that sounds like you had some pretty, I mean, you made the decision not to have kids at a very early age then. I mean, that's, yeah. that's but just so, so already clearly you were having big sort of worldview shifting thoughts happening to you here. Exactly. And I'm wondering how those sorts of things from Betty Friedan, obviously people, you know, feminine mystique and is a, I was just recently watching, if you've seen the show that just came out this year called Mrs. America, which is about uh, the women's movement in the 1970s, but she's a big character on that also. And right. what, in terms of the women's tennis scene, I think people talk about women's tennis and Billie Jean King and women's lib, this is called back then, as part of the, the women's movement as part of the feminist movement, but how much, how did it feel at that point? Like playing tennis was something that was in step with the women's lib movement. Did it feel like it was something inherently political to be a, a female athlete at that time? I think so. Yeah. I, the connection between the two wasn't really made at the time because we as tennis players were so focused on striving for equal prize money and reducing the disparity yeah. that we, we weren't talking about, the women's lib scene at the time, even though for me personally, it came into my equation as far as what I thought. And I said, I'm jumping ahead here too, but the question always, always comes up. Well, how do you solve, here's the problem. Women aren't being treated as equal. How do you solve that problem? Mm -hmm. And these are all these problems too. We have today, 50 years later than what we did they're all still there and they haven't been solved. (laughs) But what we did, a lot of stars needed to fall into place. A lot of things needed, needed, needed to happen. And we were fortunate that they did, but they did because we proved ourselves. We went out and showed that we were as interesting to watch as the men. So let's, before we get to the original nine stuff, which is coming up soon in 1970 in the chronology of your story here, how much did you right. know the the other women who were in this group before then, the other eight women? I guess most notably, Billie Jean, obviously, is the, the leader of it. And Rosie Casals was also from uh, Northern California, so I'm guessing you knew her pretty well. Oh, yeah. Well, I knew both of them very well because uh, before I went went to Wimbledon that first year in 68, Billie Jean was also living in Berkeley mm. Her husband, while her husband was in law school. And she was recovering. She contracted typhus in South Africa mm. and wasn't traveling or doing much. So she would basically get out of bed and come and practice with me and work out. And we'd also work out with Rosie. The three of us would, would practice quite a, quite a bit, which was another factor in why I played so well, because the two of them would push me a little bit. Yeah, we that's, did, that's we a pretty good have, partners to have or personal trainers or dietitians or any of this. I mean, really, if you were 100% on your own 
And uh, it was kind of funny because the two of them would practice and we'd play a game called two-on-one, where the two on one side of the net would work out the one person by themselves and kind of make them run from corner to corner. And Rosie started calling me Moose because she still calls me Moose <laughs> because I, I was always kind of a little, maybe a little lazy, not wanting to push myself. And I was more of a natural tennis came since I was, I consider myself a pretty good athlete, but right. it came a little more natural to me. And, those two had much stronger worth ethics than I did, but they helped me a lot because they pushed me a little bit to, to work out harder. So Rosie, Billy, and you and six other women all find yourselves in Houston in September 1970. I'm guessing at the invitation or at the request or of, of Gladys Heldman, who was, or who was putting something together. Can you just talk about the road that led you up there, what you what you knew about what was about to happen in, in women's tennis then, if you how, if you understood what was about to transpire or how much it was something that you realized the importance of uh, later on? Well, the summer before that, the fall. So mm-hmm. the U.S. Open is where things came to a head. But on the U.S. circuit, after, after Wimbledon, leading up to the U.S. Open, the girls had frequently got together. We'd say, hey, we're going to meet at such and such a time on the lawn here, and we get together and talk about it, about our, our situation. And we were checking checking on, if doing little research studies as far as, well, how do, how do spectators feel? Do they like to watch men or women, and et cetera, et cetera. And we came to the conclusion that they did like to watch women, and that the men were were uh, not correct in saying that, well, no one wants to watch you because that was their first answer when we said we wanted equal prize money. And of course the men looked, I think they looked at it a little bit as a threat. And by men, I mean the, the players right. uh, thought, well, they'd be taking money away from, from their pot. And their comeback was, as I said, nobody wants to watch you. And, it was true the women would usually be on the back courts where they didn't have equal exposure. So if that changed, as soon as we had a more equal exposure, people did want to watch us play. <laughs> but to answer your question, we had, although we, we had a lot of discussions, but we went around in circles as to how we could solve the problem. And I was always friends with Gladys Heldman. She, she yeah. was a member of mine and took me under her wing, taught me a lot of a lot of things in life. I mean, she taught me some important things, like that if you wanted to have a cocktail before six, so you always had a vodka martini. So <laughs> she, <laughs> she was quite a character and, yeah. and had contacts and was an unbelievable mover and shaker. Very very intelligent woman who thought for herself and spoke for herself and was quite independent from her husband, who was a vice president of Shell Oil Company. So mm. he was by no means a shadow of him. He was a shadow of her. Mm. You, mentioned, you mentioned that women's sport. You mentioned that women's the debate over whether or not anyone wanted to watch women's tennis, or at least the male players saying no one was interested in women's tennis. And 
I, I this reminds me of something I, I think I remember reading about that also happened in 1970. I'm not sure if you were involved in this or aware of it at the time, but uh, CC Martinez was a player back then. Yeah. And she yep. and she did a survey at the 1970 U.S. Open, basically of fans. Like she just on her own enterprise passed out like a, a one page survey, like gauging interest in women's tennis to show that there to with the hopes of seeing what the interest was, and it wound up being more positive results, I think, for women than they expected. Do you remember that survey at all? Were you is that something people talked about exactly, back then? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, CC was a friend of mine. She grew up in San Francisco, and mm. we practiced together quite a bit too. And she was another another of the few of us that went on to to go to actually make the choice to go to college instead of stay on the circuit year round. And uh, she she organized the the survey, and that's kind of what I was referring to before. I didn't mention her name, but yeah, but that she did that at the, at at the uh, the open. And it was at the that open where we had quite a few meetings as well, and and Gladys got fired up to jump in and help, and and uh, then organized the Houston tournament. So, the, in terms of getting fired up, the the fuel for that fire was primarily about the lack of equal prize money. Is that fair? Because I mean, there were still combined events at various places. The U.S. Open was a combined event, but had unequal prize money at that point. The Pacific Coast tournament that gets all the attention for this story, the the Jack Kramer event, similarly. Was that what it really was? Was just seeing taking more notice of the the lack of equal prize money or, or I guess unequal playing opportunities even? Yes, it was, yeah. it was a it was a discrepancy in prize money that was yeah. the driven factor. So then, so then in Houston, did do you what what did Gladys tell you was going to happen there? What was the message to players in terms of why why they should come be a part of what was going to happen in Houston with this uh, group of players who would become the original nine later? I had had talks with Gladys previously about what course we could take, and she had some ideas. But she she was great friends with Joe Coleman, who CEO of Philip Morris, mm-hmm. and I was privy to the fact that she had some some ideas. But what she said, she called me up and she said, "Christy, I know you're in college, and I was in, I, I had was in class then." She said, "I want you to come to Houston." We're, some big things are going to happen. If you do, though, I have to warn you, you might, you might be suspended from playing in further tournaments. Hmm. I had to think about that. I had confidence in, in Gladys, and I also knew that this was the right thing to do. It had to happen. We had to make a big leap and take a leap of faith with, with Gladys and Joe Coleman and Philip Morris and so I said, sure, I'll come. If I get suspended, uh, I guess I'll just go back to school for a while. <laughs> so uh, I had a, I had something to, to fall back on myself, whereas a lot of the other girls were risking their 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 careers. Yeah, so I, I want to ask about that, because you were the youngest member of the original nine then and, and now, uh, and they're all still with us, which is tremendous. Um, but I, So I wanted to ask about, did you feel like you had less to lose because you had this whole other life going on with college and something to fall back on? Or did you feel like you had more to lose because you were still at such an early stage of your, of what could have been your tennis playing career? I'd say, yeah, that's an interesting question. 50, 50, because I mm. did have, have school and college to fall back on. But since I was young, I was risking quite a bit, but I think, and for me, I've always been a rebel. I rebelled against my dad's attitude and mm. I've always re- 
had rebelled and been independent and done what I thought was right. And I really felt like I need to carry, carry on with this and just see where, where it led. Because there was also the question, do people really want to watch women play as much as they'd like to watch the men? Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a big, big question. There was some fear in my mind. Well, <laughs> maybe, you know, what if the men are right? So we had to make it, we had to make it work. And I think all the women that signed on board are all basically rebels is a good term. We've been referred to as that. And I think in their way, they're all independent thinkers. Even Carrie, Carrie Melville is this very sweet person, demure and quiet and thoughtful off the court and friendly, but on the court, she was tougher than nails and you'd see her, her fight come out in her. And I think that was another reason why she felt compelled to sign on. And, she would be one you think, well, I don't want to take a chance. But most of us were, were willing. We were fighters and yeah. wanted, wanted to go for it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about A couple dropped out and a couple, couple never signed, signed on until the money got big. And that, that to me was a little frustrating when we paved away and then the others who wouldn't join jumped in there when the money got big. Right. <laughs> like so, Margaret Court. Yeah. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you about about the group of nine. We talked a little bit about Billy and, and Rosie. Well, you found I have more about them too, but just about the personalities of of these this group of women. The sense of rebellious streak in all of them, and the women, you know, I can name them for people who don't know: Billie Jean King, Rosie Casals, Nancy Ritchie, Peaches Barkowitz, uh, you, Christy Pigeon, Valerie Ziegenfuss, Julie Heldman, and then the two Australians, Carrie Melville and Judy. Dalton was there did you all sort of have that same rebellious spirit to you or is it a, a mix was it everyone as gung-ho and, and on board with the sort of the feminism side of it as, as Billie Jean was or was it a a spectrum there what, what what were the sort of commonalities that made this group of women all willing to be on board at this point yeah the commonality was that basically all all nine were rebels in one way or another independent mm-hmm. thinkers and Willing, willing. I think to take the to take the chance. Uh, Val Ziegenfuss is a is a very very nice woman, and she she probably would be the quietest out of all of us about not wanting to ruffle any feathers. Mm. And uh, Billie Jean, of course, is a big feather ruffler, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. And Rosie just wants to do what's right, and the other. The other women felt felt the same way that they wanted a shot at at proving that that they were that that their sport was valuable. Definitely. So you mentioned so so you have the the famous photo where Gladys gives everybody and Gladys is in the photo herself because Julie is not in the photo. Her daughter is one of the nine, all holding up the dollar bills, uh, which is becomes sort of an iconic moment to, of them accepting money to to go pro with to sign with to sign with Gladys in this symbolic one dollar contracts. From then on, like, what was the shift in terms of your ability to dedicate yourself more towards professional tennis? Did it all sort of having the, that was the start of the Virginia Slims circuit, in essence. So that was that sort of a, as dramatic a shift as it seems like on paper for you in terms of what you were able to play? Or were you still sort of a part timer in tennis? Well, I played I did play on the first circuit mm. because uh, I would usually go to school for the first quarter semester so say four months up till christmas i go to school and then stop going and start playing on the circuit 
And that was tough to do because I'd have to practice while I was in college, which is tough when you have parties to go to and studying to do. For sure. Practicing your tennis, kind of. sometimes it wasn't at the forefront. But when I was playing, I, I tried to dedicate myself just to playing tennis because you're on a circuit and you have to keep going. And that first year of the Virginia Slims, we played eight tournaments in the United States and that was a tough go. That was a lot, of, a, a lot of work because of all the promotional things we needed to do and, and the schedule, the traveling. It was, it was, it was a tough time. What was, what was the atmosphere like on tour then? What were the sort of, what were the, what were the tournaments like? What kind of crowds were you getting? What was, what was the amenities like at that nascent stage of the tour? The crowds at first were not, were not huge. And mm. we were, doing things like giving giving free clinics to the, the the women that were junior league members in a town, say, in mm-hmm. Detroit, I think, where we played, and would get up early to do talk shows. And then I, I can remember Carrie Melville, and I went to Kmart hmm. one afternoon and sat there for three hours passing out photos and autographs and, in the sports section. And people would kind of walk by and they'd see me sitting there in my USA uh, sweat sweat clothes with the said United USA across the chest. And and they'd kind of think, well, who the heck are you guys? You know, <laughs> what? What do you do? <laughs> so it took, it took a lot. But Philip Morris played a big part in it, too, because they, as you know, had, had a couple full-time staff members who traveled with us on the circuit and right. all the press in the towns that we played had tickets and promo information and set up interviews. So they, they were helpful. It took, it took, it took a lot to, to get us kicked, kicked off the ground, so, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and they were very professional in their approach. And what was fortunate, I mean, obviously we're, promoting a cigarette, so to speak, for Jimmy right. Slims. But uh, I view it as we were not promoting a cigarette. We were promoting that strong is beautiful and women are strong. I was going to ask about that because Philip Morris I had this new line of cigarettes, the Virginia Slims brand, which I believe is still around. Um, I don't know much about cigarettes, having never been a smoker, but they <laughs> they they had the, they wanted to pitch, you know, smoking and tennis as sort of compatible things women could do and be independent. And it was it was seen as being part of their their branding towards women. And, and right, they did have and Philip Morris, huge, massive company in tobacco, even as, you know, uh, people were starting to realize more of the health risks and dangers of, of smoking around the same time period. Um, people, you know, people still kept buying cigarettes and the marketing kept being good. So if they could sell cigarettes to people, I think women's tennis was seen as easy for them. So uh, what, what was, what was the sort of, was there a thought that it was sort of a, a, a I don't want to say deal with the devil, but sort of a double-edged sword having a tobacco company be the, the flagship partner of the sport? It was, cause I know there was at least, especially as the decades went on for the tour, probably after you stopped playing. Uh, it was often seen as well, sort of an Achilles heel that, you know, easy thing to criticize women's tennis for, that they had this tobacco partnership. Exactly. Well, what's interesting is, no, to answer your first question, is mm-hmm. we never thought we were going to bed with the devil. Yeah. We never felt that way at all. And Philip Morris never asked 
us to promote the cigarette. Never. And that's why it was all very acceptable in my mind is because, as I said, we're, we're promoting strong women. Right. And strong women can make their own mind up as to what they want to do, whether they want to smoke or not. We never tried to answer that question. We, we never passed out cigarettes, even though my mom smoked and she was sent a pack every week. (laughs) (laughs) She was on the so-called free list. (laughs) So so it was, it was interesting. And when we'd uh, play in that first circuit, we'd, we'd finish our matches. We'd go in the locker room and there'd be a little bowl of, of uh, cigarettes and mm. a cooler with ice in it with Miller High Life beer, which was another subsidiary of Philip Morris. And, mm. and a couple of the gals would indulge every now and then. And I would usually indulge in the beer, but not right. the cigarettes. So. Yeah. No, it, it, I think it's, I think the timing of it was that I think smoking had just, or cigarette commercials, tobacco commercials had just been banned on television just before the Virginia Slim circuit started us. And that was part of the impetus for wanting, for them wanting to get their brand name out there and have, cause they could put, you know, exactly. the, the signage on court, say Virginia Slims of, and then the name of a city somewhere in the U S usually. And that was their way of getting brand awareness when they couldn't actually advertise their actual product during the stoppages. Like they, yeah. they once did. So it was a, it was their version of product placement and you guys were the, the vehicle for it. Yeah. But the, but the, like it could, you know, the, the marketing prowess of, that company and the resources they poured into it, I think really did help women's tennis get off the ground. Cause that was, you know, super, super professional veteran engine suddenly behind the sport. Yeah, exactly. So the timing was great for, for both women's tennis and for their launch of a new cigarette. Obviously that, that helped both of us. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned you went to Margaret court earlier. So I'm curious, Margaret joined the, uh, Virginia slim circuit, a bit after the original nine, uh, not that long after, a couple, maybe within a year or two after, um, and Billie Jean King was there. And now, obviously, people who are keeping track of what these women are doing in their 70s will will know well what different divergent paths they've taken, you know, politically and, and just sort of in terms of the roles they play and everything. And how, how, di- how, vi- how obvious was that sort of schism back then in terms of their personalities and their mindsets? Or was it? something that came as a surprise later. I guess you always kind of knew a Billie Jean, but I'm curious about Margaret back then, I guess. Yeah, I knew Margaret, Margaret well too. I, I played with her in doubles a few times and, and got to know her a little bit. And yes, her, it's interesting. Her path has been quite different. She's now a minister and has very solid, strict beliefs and, and of course, Billie Jean is still the free spirit that she was. Mm-hmm. So that that is it. It's interesting. Their paths are different, and they're they're. I don't think Margaret is even accepting of of her group even to, to today. No. So it's <laughs> it's it's a a different a different hers is a different story. Did you sense that, like, because I think there's, you know, a lot of times, especially in, in burgeoning moments of women's sports, a lot of people think of them as, there's a debate whether they should be treated as a business or as a cause, is sort of the dichotomy 
that happens there. And I feel like a lot of what, with it being intertwined with feminism, a lot of the early women's professional tennis stuff was seen as a cause, right? That you were doing these things to make a point in some way or another about, about women while also having a business that attracted people and everything like that. Did, were there players, I guess I'm thinking of Margaret here, but others who were part of it, but weren't in, didn't buy into the cause part as much, maybe who came after the original nine, because the original nine at least seems very cause oriented, right? But then as the as the ranks grew and as the numbers grew on tour, I'm guessing a lot of people didn't necessarily have to have that same sort of rebelliousness as it became more, more established. Right. Yeah. Margaret, Margaret court was, was one that wasn't maybe necessarily behind the cause. Yeah. As you said, and I like the way you stated that. And then same with Virginia Wade. She did not want to jump on board and, and mm. she's, she's a bright woman that was, was one of the top players from England at the time. And, she was hesitant to join. I, I think she also didn't want to get suspended. And then originally, Chrissy Everett didn't want to join either. She was coming on at that time. and But for her, it was more the risk of she didn't want to risk getting suspended because right. she was an up-and-coming player, et cetera, et cetera. But, of course, she was willing to willing to sign on when the money was big and everything was cleared up. Yeah. Once, once it became a little more of a state, once the, there was peace yeah. between the, the tour and the U S LTA, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. I, I could see her point or her, she probably consulted with her parents and made the decision. It wasn't the right time for her to start getting involved with this. And, and, uh, the rest of us, I think we knew in our hearts that this is what, what we needed we needed to do yeah so, so when and when we did, we sorry, didn't consult with our parents right. <laughs> sorry no, no worries she was also younger i guess she was still a teenager i guess when this thing was was taking off in her defense yeah guess, right yeah how did how did your playing days reach their their end what was the sort of when did you when did your time on tour peter out or, or come to an end uh it was a combination. It was just, it happened slowly during my college days. Unfortunately, I tried initially to do both, but as the tennis scene became more and more competitive after the formulation of the Virginia Slim circuit, mm -hmm. I mean, women's tennis at that point just took off gangbusters and it got to the point where you had to be a true professional or you weren't going to cut it. Right. And unfortunately I was, and I'm not going to call myself a victim because I wasn't, but I got so much from tennis. So many, I gained so many life skills to be more specific by traveling by myself, having to take care of myself and et cetera, et cetera, because it was a lot different. We didn't have coaches that went with us and right. trainers and secretaries, et cetera, et cetera. So the life skills I gained were very important, but on the tennis side, my studies became slightly, as time progressed, more important than the tennis. And then I just couldn't, I couldn't set new goals in tennis. And it got to the point where to be a top player, you had to be 100% dedicated. Yeah. You had to eat, sleep, and breathe tennis. And that's the way it is today. Yeah. You mentioned the competitiveness. I wanted to ask about that. What is, in terms of the atmosphere on tour, I guess from the original nine or even before that original nine and as it, as through the remainder of your career, how much did it feel 
you know, like you're talking about with training with Billie Jean and with, with Rosie, like a sort of a cooperative sisterhood? And how much did it become more cutthroat? And did that sort of that side of it, you know, or, or more competitive, at least? Uh, and did that side of it increase as the money increased? Well, the cutthroat side of it, it's interesting you, could, you should ask that because from my vantage point, women have always been a lo- extremely more cutthroat than men for example if we would lose to another woman even if she was our friend i mean we basically wouldn't speak to each other we'd be really pissed off yeah still see that on tour for sure men men don't don't have that same attitude they'll go especially the aussies they lose to each other and go have a beer together afterwards Hmm. so women women are i think more fierce competitors and that that created some issues when we were in close contact. We weren't, I mean, granted, we did have friendships. And women have a tendency to have a little click sometimes and little spats with each other. And mm-hmm. we had those on that first circuit because we were in such close quarters. And, and it wasn't, for example, in, I can remember playing in Oklahoma City where 16 of us on that, the first, the first circuit had 16 players. So we had recruited eight more other than eight from the original nine that played on that first circuit. And we had to share four cards. Well, whoever had the keys to the car would hide them and not give them to the other <laughs> people we're sharing a car with. I mean, little things like that, I think, are a testament to women's competitive attitude. We didn't want to give anyone else a break. And sometimes it was hard for me to find people to to even warm up for a match with because I'm left-handed and they didn't want to have coming to them with a a different spin than say if they were facing a right-handed opponent. So it was, it was was a dog. It was much more of a dog eat dog world. I mean, now I think the players get by because they have their teams that go with them. So they, they have camaraderie with, with other players as well, but still have their team to fall back on to be their support system where we had to be a lot tougher. Right. And not at the top at the top ranks, you know, I, can kind of be islands. You know, they have their own teams, they have their own entourages, they play with their own hitting partners they practice with. And they don't they can sort of they don't rely on each other as much as you as you had to back then. They certainly have their own cars. Not you know not, not yeah. car sharing. <laughs> oh exactly. Happening. I mean yeah, now they're winning Porsches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in Stuttgart, that's right. And now they're and now they're I doing... had to pay for mine. <laughs> And now they're doing well. I mean, you mentioned the the ratings before like the viewership, and I just saw it just yesterday, actually, coincidentally enough. The um, ratings for the U.S. Open came out for the last week of the U.S. Open, and the women's final had bigger viewership numbers than the men's final for the fourth time in six years since it switched to ESPN. And the semifinal numbers, the women have had much bigger numbers than the men all six years since it's been on ESPN. Wow. And, and you know, there's obviously they've had Serena, I think, in every one of those or all but one of the semifinals. And the one they didn't, they had four American women. So there are some, you know, if you want to say explanations for why, but the, I mean, the numbers are, are clear that women's tennis is is standing, at least in the U.S., certainly uh, equal or, or ahead of in terms of interest of uh, of men's tennis, which is which is pretty remarkable to see and makes it a, a really unique success story in sports. I think everyone yeah. thinks can be traced back to to your group. So what, exactly, what, if you, yeah. what, what if you thought of, of just seeing 
the of how women's tennis has developed since you left as a pro sport as a as a product as a as an environment as a culture i'm not sure how much you still how closely you still follow the the tour but but what have you made of seeing it develop through the different eras that came after yours into now i think one of the reasons why that's happened and i think you're right the the culture is has exceeded what i ever expected but i think part of the reason is because you've you've had a lot of over over the years since over the last fifty years, you've had so many rivalries, mm. like Chrissy Everett versus Navratilova. I mean, you have on the men's side as well, obviously mm-hmm. quite a few. But but you you you've had that to bring in spectators and to make it more attractive because they do have different personalities and they're fun to, they're just fun to watch. And tennis in general is fun, is, is fun to watch. And it's something that everybody can understand. It's for example, I watch hockey now and sometimes I can't understand. I don't still don't understand. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my other sport. Those are the two sports I played growing up for hockey and tennis. So cool. Near to my heart. Cool. Sure. I like, I like it. Yeah. So, so yeah, sure. The original nine had a reunion in Charleston. I was actually at a banquet. I was actually at my first time covering that tournament. Oh, cool. What was it? What was it like being there and reuniting with the, I know there were more plans to have a reunion this year that obviously got preempted by all the pandemic concerns, but what was it like reuniting with those women? Uh, gosh, like 40, uh, let me do the math, like 42 years later. What was, what was that like? Yeah, no, all nine of us were there. And it was fascinating to me to see everybody and without having having to compete made a big difference. Yeah. All of us, there was just huge camaraderie and it was all smiles and talk and buddies. And there were quite a few meetings where were held just for us that were not open to other people. There were some that had sponsors and et cetera, tournament people there and et cetera, et cetera. But it was it was great to see everybody. We we had a little golf tournament that we some of us played in, and that was fun. And, and uh, I could get a clearer picture of why the group, our group, came together. Hmm. Because it wasn't just coincidence that the people that Gladys invited to that first tournament. It wasn't coincidence who they were. I don't think. And. Of course, one did drop out that was there. Patty Hogan did, didn't want to take the chance, so she didn't play in the tournament. Hmm. Make basically file the protest. And I think others were that are also said they didn't want to even come because they didn't want to risk it. So right. we we did that. We there was a strong bond in Charleston. It was it was pretty cool. Got to see each other at at the premiere of Battle of the Sexes. Mm. Missing, we missed one person, Nancy Ritchie, who has decided not to participate in reunion activities. And I think she's, it just is a testament to to her taking a strong stand on what she believes in. Mm. And even though I don't feel the same way, and if I could, I'd probably bop her over the head, but at least <laughs> she's, <just laughs> you know, she's, she's, she's taking her stand. She's well, being... <laughs> Can I ask what what her what her stance is what her what her differences are? Uh, sure, why not? I I and I'm gonna guess. I know she's 
strongly religious, as is Margaret Court. And I know she's sided with Margaret on some of the issues because Margaret was in danger of losing her name on her court at the uh, in Melbourne, where right, they hold yeah. Australian Open. And uh, I, I guess that there's no other word for it than I think she's homophobic. Okay. Which is her right, I guess. And she's just takes she's taken her stand again. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it's disappointing, but obviously, you know, different. They're not all of you are individuals in this group too. At the same time, and people can change and drift. Yeah. In in a fifty strong individuals. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, what have you been doing since your since your tennis days were over? I know I know a little of these answers, but if you can tell people what you're uh, what you've been up to, some interesting interesting equine activities and otherwise yeah when i was retired from the circuit i immediately moved to sun valley idaho which most people recognize as the world famous ski resort mm-hmm. but also in the summer there were strong strong tennis programs and mm-hmm. i was able to develop a tennis school where people would fly in for the week and participate in daily clinics and i did that for 11 years but during that same time that was just a summer activity so in the winter i would teach skiing guide hunting trips and participate in all the fun things that you can do around around sun valley and after 11 years i i decided i'd had enough of tennis and i had always wanted a horse and i'd been riding for quite a while owned horses at this time but i had a vision that i wanted to allow, I wanted to figure out a way for paraplegics to get back into the mountains and the back country and experience some of the things that, that are very dear to my heart because mm. I'm out, I'm an outdoor woman all through and through. And you can hear I have my dog. Yeah, I just heard them there. Yeah. Hear that, but, <laughs> but I quickly became aware that there's this world out there of of what's called therapeutic horseback riding and i was became immersed in that i i did an internship at in woodside california at the national center for equine facilitated therapy and decided this is what i want to do i want to open my own program and i found a piece of property outside of sun valley and built a little equestrian center and and we grew, uh, we became a nonprofit, 501c3 status, mm-hmm. and hired some other instructors who went through, through the training. You have to become a certified therapeutic riding instructor. And quickly we evolved to, to serving over 300 students nice. that had varying, varying disabilities. And these were anything from a mild learning disability to Parkinson's to a 90-year-old man with Parkinson's disease, Hmm. to quadriplegics, uh, at-risk youth. We had a huge at-risk program, and that was called the... My program was called the Sagebrush Equine Training Center, and it's now still running. They've changed the name to Swisher Ranch, but it still serves uh, our community, and we also helped develop some other programs in southern idaho and boise and idaho falls and before i retired and 
now that I'm retired, I've gone back to my roots as a wildlife biologist and I'm working on restoration projects, enhancing wetlands. And, and that's, that's great fun. I, as a president a year or so ago, I bought myself a, a track steer, a bobcat track steer and Hmm. perfect place to quarantine because it just fits one person (laughs) (laughs) take off and work on the landscape and get some great things done. And, and, uh, when the wildlife pours in, it's a great feeling. That's tremendous. So that's what I, I do now. I build wetlands. (laughs) Seems seems a little crazy, but it's fun. Yeah. I guess I'm hoping more wetlands too are helping or, I don't know if they're related at all. This idea of, of everything's happening in the West now with all the fires would hope that some wetlands would hope hopefully buffer some of that. I'm not sure if those are related topics at all. That might be complete ignorance on my part, but some wetter land, yeah. like a positive. Yeah, it does. It does help. And yes, we are experiencing a lot of fires and we're on looking at the window now. It's pretty smoky and it's mm. most of it's blowing in from Oregon and California. You, uh, you don't, you definitely do not want to get me started on climate change <laughs> not unless you have a few days for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think that, that, that short summary gets, at least gets your, your attitudes known on it. Um, exactly. So, so how much did, the U S open just ended a couple of days before we're recording this? How, how much did you watch much of it? Do you still follow the, the pro game men's or women's? I followed the, the U S open. Are you referring to? Yeah, yeah. It's just the U.S. Open that just ended. Yeah, yeah. No, I followed a little going up to the finals, and then I watched the finals of both the men and women, and I thought they were they were awesome. They're great. The women were are are so tough. Yeah. I mean, there's you watch the men and the women play; they're just, they're both play the same. It's incredible. Yeah. I wanted to ask about Naomi Osaka, who's gotten. A- bunch of attention during these last few weeks for her activism on court you, you saw probably that she was wearing the masks of, of people who've been killed mostly by police and to raise awareness of those issues um and it's sort of a and and she also halted play for a day during the warm-up tournament this quote-unquote cincinnati tournament that was being held in new york this year and it re- reminded me a lot of, of billy jean's time we haven't seen that much sort of athlete activism or outspokenness on any level in tennis up until then and i'm, I'm not i just was curious if you notice what Osaka was doing and, and what your thoughts were on it. Yeah. Well, I, I think when Colin Kaepernick first mm-hmm. started making gestures and being upset with, with, with his, with his issues and black lives matter, et cetera, he was bombasted and expelled and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And he took a stand and he stuck to it. And now it's changed. It's, it's become acceptable for athletes to state their minds. Yeah. And from my vantage point, I think it's okay. What's not okay is sometimes the violence that follows. And that's, what's unfortunate is the world is at this point, there's a lot of mean people. Mm. I guess I don't know what if there's a there's probably a much better word than me, but there's people that are that are so upset that they're driven 
to violence or they're being op- opportunistic and using it as a time to, to loot, et cetera. And to be honest with you, I don't really understand it. Going back to Naomi, I think she has every right to make a, a peaceful protest. She, ha- she has visibility and she, she has a cause and, and we can, we can take it for however we want to take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I think I'm, I think, I say I think because it's, it's a little unclear how, how sports figures should, should state causes, but it's not, and it's almost not right of me to say that because (laughs) I did the same thing in a way, but we did it. I think the way we did it was right. The way we did it, as opposed to other women, burning bras is not the answer, but going out and proving yourself as an athlete is the answer. Hmm. And the same thing now is go prove yourself and make your point. Because what, what the original nine did wasn't just symbolic. I mean, it was actually starting a business that wound up being a viable business. It's a you know, multi-million dollar business 50 years later. So it wasn't just, like you mentioned the bra burning, it wasn't just a symbolic gesture at all the dollar bills, they really yeah. had a, a meaning behind it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Last thing, uh, you mentioned the Battle of the Sexes movie, which I guess eight of the nine you said reunited for. Uh, what, did, what did you make of that movie and how it sort of captured the, uh, the spirit of that, of that era? I, I thought it was an accurate portrayal of what, what actually happened. Hmm. And, of course, what we did happen earlier than Billie Jean playing Bobby and we all knew that Billie Jean would win because she she does like La Hoopla the more Hoopla the better <laughs> and she could rise to the occasion or work herself up for, for beating Bobby I pretty much knew that that was going to be a no-brainer and what was great is she really drove home what we'd been working on and what we'd built up and it became such a, a popular household event to watch to watch that match that all of a sudden people were were into tennis too mm. and it helped the sport it helped it helped the men too it just it, it showed the world that tennis can be really a fun sport to watch and i have a lot of friends that don't play but watch yeah about watching because they can follow it and it's exciting and fast and interesting well it's been it's been wonderfully interesting talking to you here, Christy. Thank you very much for, for taking the time to do it. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate you remembering us and what we, what we did as being important. So so you're, are there still any plans for the 50th anniversary? What, what are the sort of coronavirus-adjusted plans for your celebration? Are they been postponed? Or are they virtually happening? What's what's going to happen this week? Yeah, on the, on the 23rd, I think... Uh, uh, virtual events being being aired by invitation and and uh, do you, if no one sends you if you want an invitation it's free yep. let me know and I'll send you one. Sounds good. <laughs> well, thank would you, you like one? Yeah, that would be great. I would I definitely would love to. Yeah, it's it's coming up, and then we'll see what happens after that. We were supposed to attend all the major Grand Slams this year, and uh, I guess the last one. It, that the last hopeful might be Australia, but who knows with coronavirus. Yeah, we just don't know where the finish line is for this. 
Yeah, it's a big unknown, so we may be blown out of the water there too. But I'll definitely invite you to our to our reunion on the twenty third of September. That would be tremendous. Thank you very much, Christy. Appreciate it. Thank you for your time again. Great. You bet. You're very welcome. So thank you very much to Christy Pigeon for coming on NCR. And thank you to you all for listening to this episode. As always, thank you especially to our Patreon backers for supporting the show. We are at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. No new backers to report since we last did an episode or last couple episodes. But we'd be happy to have you come join and be a new one as we gear up for the French Open, which starts, gosh, very soon. Just a couple days away from now. We are at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. You can find us there and show your support that way. We also want to thank our Patreon Slam Champ backers. We thank every episode. They are Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Carrillo, Chuang Nguyen, Betty, Leah Williams, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Joseph Haar, Susanna W., and Antonio Maycumber, as well as our GOAT backers, Mike, Charles Cena, and J.O.D. Any feedback on the show would be happy to get as well. No challenges remaining at gmail.com is our address there happy original nine week to you all please show love and support for all the important women in your life this week and always and we'll be back with you soon for a french open draw show things are kicking off over there pretty soon bye guys